Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, agency owner? If you're new here, I've got a free ebook on how to scale your business to multiple six and even seven figures by overcoming your dependency on referrals, doubling your profit per project, and removing yourself as the main bottleneck in your business. All you have to do is DM me the word gift on Facebook at Brent Weaver. That's facebook.com slash Brent Weaver. And I'll send you your guide on how to achieve freedom in business and life. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners, digital agency owners. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Agency Show. I'm your host, Brent Weaver. And today we are hanging out with Mike Michaelowitz. He is the entrepreneur behind three multi-million dollar companies and is the author of Profit First, Clockwork, The Pumpkin Plan, and his newest book, Fix This Next. Mike is a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal and regularly travels the globe as an entrepreneurial advocate. Mike, welcome to the program. Brent, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Mike, give us. Uh, so, you've got a, a huge amount of of entrepreneurial experience. You've been in this game for a long time. I'm curious, uh, what kind of first attracted you to starting a business and getting into this uh, getting into this line of work? So, we're already starting with a non tip uh, experience. Do not do what I did. It was booze that got me into it, and uh, specifically, I after I graduated college, I I couldn't get the dream job. I wanted to work for like a big, at the time, I think they were called the big six accounting firms, you know, in a consultative format and uh, couldn't get the job. So I worked for, I went home and worked for a local computer store. And uh, one particular night I went out with a colleague there and had a few too many cold ones in me and uh, liquid courage kicked in. I said, you know, I'm, I'm smarter than this owner. And all he does is sit back and in the back of the room, soaking cigars and counting money as I, you know, work my butt off trying to sell computers to people. And I said, I'm going to start my own computer business. And my, my colleague I was with said, well, try it, do it, man. If you, if you got the guts, do it. I'm like, I'll do it right now. He's like, no, do it. Like in the kind of like argument breaks out about me doing it. And I left this <laughs> slurry, drunken voicemail for the boss. And I quit and I'm starting my own <laughs> business. Like a total idiot. Uh, next morning with sobriety, uh, I woke up and I called and said that I, it was a mistake. And I was just totally drunk and I'm embarrassed and ashamed. And I want my job back. And he's like, no, good luck, kid. And uh, so I kind of th- was thrust into starting a company. And I also had, uh, I got married, I was already married very young and had a child. And so I had a f- three mouths to feed and figure out a business when I was 23 years old. And um, I-, I now I found that fear is probably one of the greatest underrated assets. You know, fearless is not a good approach. Fearful can really motivate you to keep you going for a period of time. I'm not saying to live in that state all the time. But I was fearful of failure. I was terrified how to feed myself and my my wife and child and and just started to crank on work. And uh, sure enough, it took time, but it started to get momentum. And uh, I've, I've now owned you know multiple businesses, I think five or six total businesses. I, I really like that you bring up the the power of fear in that. And I know that there's a lot of stuff about, you know, in entrepreneurship, gotta have an abundance mindset and don't have a scarce mindset and yeah. you know, think think hope, not fear, right? But uh but I, I actually was reflecting on this. We have an event coming up and I was reflecting on this for myself about some of the well, our theme for the event is reinvent. And uh 
you know, fear, uh, for better or for worse, has been a huge driver for me in in reinventing my businesses multiple times. So I think that's a that is a powerful theme that's probably underplayed a little bit in uh, in the world of you know it kind is. of positivity entrepreneurship. But I I think the point you make there is is spot on. You can't live in that state forever, but it it is a powerful elixir for short bursts of energy. It is right. It gets you up at five in the morning and work until five the next morning. I. Uh, I found there's three stages of entrepreneurship from the mindset, at least the three that come to mind. There's first the fearful stage and it's, it's a survival mindset. And, um, it's good because the energy gives you like, you will work harder than you ever have. And it just keeps on fueling that. The downside is you're, it's often much more of a, there's a saying desperate people do desperate things. It's much more of a desperation mindset. It's very urgent oriented, quick money, and jumping around type survival. So it's not often sustainable, but it gets you going. It's the spark for sure. I think the next phase is confidence. And confidence is where we've achieved some degree of stability in our sales and profitability. There's some money going to our pocket. And now we start looking for efficiencies in that. Um, and hopefully the fear starts to fade because fear, if it remains inside us, you know, causes stress and stress and can cause health concerns ultimately. But Fear we can become confidence. The highest level I think is aspiration. Aspiration is where I got the, I got a business that's really having impact. How do I change the world or my world? You know, my community, my family. Like, what, what's the real aspiration I have for this business? And um, I think every stage is necessary. I don't think any stage is better than any other. But if you stay rooted in fear, or even if you stay rooted in confidence, I, I know people that have run very effective businesses uh, and are making money. And now they're saying, now what? Like, is this it? Like, it's weird. They have a cash ATM they've created and they're frustrated because it's not serving them. The highest, I think, is this aspirational stage where we're really looking to give back and have impact. I, I like that you communicate that in a kind of a three-part model that it, it you, you kind of build upon them. Because I, I have seen people that maybe start with something extraordinarily aspirational with this huge impact vision, but maybe they don't have, you know, enough traction for the idea to even survive past inception. They're kind of like, oh, this is, you know, I'm gonna get this huge vision, right? But then they don't, they aren't like, they don't really need the money or they don't really need the customers to survive. So they just kind of, you know, never, it never ends up happening. Right. Um, but I think that yeah. when you have, you know, if you have a family or a spouse or whatever that's kind of relying on you to, to bring that money and all of a sudden you have a little bit more of a, uh, a motivation to make that happen. You know, I, I, I've been talking a little bit about purpose and um, I haven't written a book about it yet. I made one one point. And I remember I saw this guy like a, a year ago and he said, uh, we'd met a few times. He goes, what, what's, your, what's your life's purpose? And I said, my life's purpose is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Now, I remember this was about two years ago. And uh, he looks at me and starts kind of tearing up and uh, I'm like, what's your purpose? I don't even remember how the conversation started, but he goes, uh, I just want to put food on the table, man. Like, I just want to put feed my family. And he goes, I'm embarrassed that my purpose isn't as big as yours. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Like, there is no bigger or better purpose for anyone. If anything, being devoted to supporting your family. Ends up his circumstances where his wife had passed away, he was the only provider. And I'm like, you know, to provide for your family is huge. Here's what's interesting too, is he came back a year later. So I think I originally met with him two years ago. It was about a year ago. He came back and uh, we, we reconnected and uh, we, we went back to that conversation. And he says, my life's purpose has changed. He goes, now it's to provide for any single parent's uh, mealtime. You discovered that feeding your family is more than just the survivability mindset. He goes, that's the ultimate moment every day where you get to reconnect as a family. So he started this, this program to feed 
families that have single parents so that they can have family time. So I, I think, you know, purpose can change over time. And, and I think there is nothing bigger or better. I, I simply think that whatever we feel called to do will lead us to this next step. And in his, it went from feeding his family to empowering others to have the same experience. That's really powerful. And I, and I like that purpose can change. Uh, and also that maybe when those core needs are met, that maybe purpose can even appear, right? Or at least, you know, yeah, a greater yeah, exactly. purpose or something can, can be exactly. developed. So I, I recently saw you talk at uh, one of Taki Moore's events and kind of in line with your, you know, at least your purpose a couple of years ago, which was to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned a stat that 83% yeah. of businesses under 25 million a year in revenue are surviving uh, check to check. And I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks that that's probably even like the real number is probably even worse, right? It's just, uh, you know, but, probably but, is, but that's yeah. still 83%, right? Eight out of 10 businesses are surviving check to check. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, uh, probably similar to like the American household, right? But like, like, um, you know, tell me about that. Like, why why do small businesses and, and probably some businesses that you've experienced, you know, why is it so hand-to-mouth in terms of, you know, like, if we don't get this client check-in, like, we're not going to make payroll? Or what most happens, what I, what I hear most often is the owner doesn't get paid, right? The business maybe survives a little bit longer, uh, but the owner certainly isn't, uh, isn't getting compensation. It's almost ironic, right? Maybe that's not a word. It's just, it seems peculiar that so many businesses can sustain in this barely getting by experience for sometimes years or decades. Like the business is just getting by, but it seems to just get by. How can it continually walk such a fine line for so long where the owner's not getting paid, the business isn't thriving, but it's just surviving? To me, that was confounding. And until I understood this behavioral concept called Parkinson's Law, and at Taki's event, I, I talked about it. Parkinson's law basically states that as a resource expands in its availability, our consumption of that resource will respond and, and, and demand that resource in equal amounts. So if I, for example, I've given, you give me five days to prepare a proposal for you, Brent, we discuss whatever topic, whatever need you have. And I say, okay, I'll get a proposal in five days. It will likely take me five days to get you that proposal. But if you and I have the same conversation about the exact same thing, so no element changes except... I say, I'll get to you in one day. I'm likely to get done in one day. And that's Parkinson's law. The, the more of the resource of time that's made available, we will dilly-dally, use it ineffectively or inefficiently. Uh, we'll tell ourselves, oh, we got time and delay. When there's a compression in time, I don't have much time left, we put a sense of urgency on it and work often more efficiently toward achieving it. It's like if you ask anyone in their college days, are you better at... Uh, you know, getting ready for an exam six months in advance, or are you better uh, cramming for it? Most people say, I'm actually better cramming, and they think they're unique. No, it's actually human nature. When there's less time available, we become more efficient in its consumption, its use. And uh, so this is true for time. That was the basis of Parkinson's theory, but it expands to any resource. You know, if you want to explain why a global society, why our waistlines are expanding, just look at the size of our plates, and there's your answer. As plates, you know, dinner plates have gotten bigger, the portions we serve at restaurants or even at home have gotten bigger to consume the full plate, and uh, we consume what's on the plate. So the, the great irony is if you want to control your waistline, simply reduce the size of your plates, your home. It's forced portion control, and you'll work in with the confines of what's there. Well, this is true for money too. And this is the problem that businesses have. The 
the plate we put into our business is the one biggest plate we have. We, we make a single checking account. Our money flows into there. We see how much money is available in our checking account. When we log in, we say, wow, I got $1,000 or $10,000 or $50,000, whatever the number is. And we say, oh, that's what I have to spend. And so our consumption of that money expands to meet the money that's available. The irony is we think the solution is sell more. I hear that decree all the time. I just need to sell into profitability. And yet these businesses never do. The reason is, is they're putting more and more cash on that plate. And putting more on it simply means there's more available for the business to consume. So most businesses are in this cycle of sell to cover expenses. And as you sell more, more expenses will be incurred to support more sales and it becomes a circuitous experience. What I proposed at our event and what I've been teaching through Profit First is we need to set up additional plates. We need to remove... When money comes in, we need to set it up on plates for its intended purpose and reduce or remove some of that money that's available for us to operate the business. So if $1,000 comes in, you don't have $1,000 to run your business. That's the essence of it. $1,000 comes in, a portion of that goes toward profit. A portion goes to paying the owner a normalized salary. A portion goes to be reserved for taxes and other purposes. And then a portion, and only a portion, goes to the operations of the business. And if you allocate the money to these different intended uses before you spend a dime, you start working within the confines of what's truly available to operate your business, and you start breaking out of this check-to-check survival. Hey, agency owners, are you currently building, managing, or optimizing WordPress websites and struggling to keep up or becoming the bottleneck? I'm excited to announce Unlimited WP, a white-label team that can help you do more with less. Whether you're building a WordPress website, doing updates, or maintenance and backups, you can assign all those tasks and more to Unlimited WP so you can free your time, make more money, and focus on what's most important. Get 25% off your first month by using the code DAS2020 at unlimitedwp.com to start today. Now let's get back to our interview. When you developed this, I assume it was a little bit from your own experience. Were you struggling to to pay yourself first? Uh, you know, I mean, I think Profit First has been phenomenally successful in the entrepreneurial world. I, I I don't meet very many entrepreneurs that aren't that haven't read it or that aren't implementing it at some level, yeah. even with your initial like one percent kind of first step thing. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. You know, like for from your own experience, was there kind of a before and after, like before totally. you realized this? I mean, I look, I've got. You know, I've had various, you know, contract CFO type people in my businesses, uh, controllers, bookkeepers, etc. I mean, there, there's like the accounting rules where they hand you like a profit and loss statement. And I think like very many people, there's been many moments where I'm like, ah, the business is profitable. Then I open my checking right. account and I'm like, wait, there's no money, right? Like, right, 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 right. right? So I guess, um, you know, what was like your, your moment of epiphany for how you implemented this methodology that's changed so many businesses? For me, it was a, uh, a financial calamity. And I think, unfortunately, but maybe it's necessary for the human journey is that I think sometimes we're awakened when we have a real traumatic event. And uh, for me, it was financial. I had run a couple of businesses. They had grown in revenue. And for small businesses, they were relatively successful in the revenue front. At least that would be the perception. One company, I sold it to private equity, uh, my first company, and uh, that computer company. And it got to about $2 million plus in revenue when I sold it. My second company was in computer crime investigation. I had a partner in that. We grew to about uh, a seven million dollar run rate. We were two and a half years in, and, and the business was on a great growth trajectory. And we sold it to a Fortune five hundred. So you know, from the outside, it's like, wow, that's a, those are you know, pretty remarkable, atypical businesses. Uh, but the reality was, they were never profitable. The, the stress was overwhelming. I actually say that sales translates to stress. And if you think about it, sales, is an obligation. 
every time I sell something to a client, I now have an obligation to deliver on that sale. And obligation means or stress put on my organization. So the more sales I have, the more obligation I have, the more stress the organization and I am feeling. The balance to this, of course, is profitability. And I didn't have that. Remember my one company, I think it was three or $400,000 in monthly payroll. And we were bootstrapped as a company. We had two bad months in a row. We didn't have enough money to, to pay payroll. And I had to refinance my house just to cover a portion of the payroll. It was, it was terrifying and the stress was overwhelming. Well, I sold the companies and, the, and those were my exits. That's actually where I recouped all of my losses. And I started to believe that notion that profitability is an eventuality. It's really just to stick it out as long as you can and maybe you can sell your business and make money. Most people never sell their businesses. I was an outlier in that case. I didn't realize that. But I think most business owners think that if I simply sell long enough and strong enough, one day profitably will appear. But Parkinson's law, that expanding demand on our resources, proves that it'll never happen. And I learned this on my third business. My third business was uh, angel investor. I was probably one of the worst angel investors ever. I said, I shared a Takis event. I call myself the angel of death. Like I was that bad. <laughs> and uh, I, I said that at Takis event. And um, I blew all my own personal money. I invested randomly. Uh, investment's not even the right word. I blew money randomly for all these different startups. And uh, it was a pure financial calamity. It was just growing, growing expenses. And I came home to my family uh, one particular day, February 14th, I'll never forget, 2008. I had lost my last penny. My accountant called me and said, you should declare bankruptcy, which I actually didn't, but I, I had to dig my own way out. We lost our house. We lost our possessions. And that was the awakening moment. It was my daughter. I told her she couldn't go horseback riding because I couldn't even afford that. We were that broke. And she ran to her bedroom to grab her piggy bank, put it in front of me and said, daddy, I'll start providing for us. Like <laughs> that we became so, it was so bad that my nine-year-old daughter thought she was going to be the salvation for our business. And I was just so embarrassed. That was the awakening. That was the realization. I have no understanding of how cash flow works for a business. I don't know how to do accounting. I still honestly don't in the traditional sense. But I needed a system that could allow me to drive profitability consistently without me having to change who I am or learn something new. And so over the years after that event, I started to create a system for myself to make it really simple to manage money. Once I discovered Profit First and its first versions, I became the ultimate guinea pig. I started 11 years ago, 2008. And then uh, I tested it, I tweaked it. Then I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal and hundreds of people were emailing me and calling me saying, oh, I want to set this up myself. And that was the impetus to write a book around it. And now I'm proud to say uh, we've, we're approaching about 200,000. By the end of 2019, there'll be over 200,000 businesses that have implemented Profit First. And I think we've always scratched the surface. There's 180 million businesses globally, small businesses. And uh, I'm inspired to serve every single one uh, in driving the profitability. Well, that's an incredible uh, feat. I mean, 200, that's that's pretty big impact. I think you're, yeah. you're well on your way for uh, at least making some, some, uh, some big steps towards eradicating entrepreneurial pro- poverty by keeping keeping more of the profit in, in business owners' hands. Um, yeah, so it's weird. Like I'm... I'm extremely proud of it and at the same time, very humbled. And I also had the, I think the greatest realization I had around Profit First happened now a few years ago. It's not even like me. I thought it was me. My, my ego played into it. But now I, I've come to this realization that Profit First is its own thing. I'm one of the cogs in the wheel pushing it, but there's other people that have embraced it and carrying it out there. And, and for it to really have impact on the entrepreneurial world, 
I, I can't be the only person promoting it out there. So it's just kind of, you know, people have adopted it and owned it and talk about it. And it's not even necessarily about the sale of the book. Like the book is a part of it, but even if you just, from this web, this uh, interview, this podcast, if you just get two or three sound bites and you can start implementing profit first, like that's a huge win. Now we got another person going. And, and I mean, ultimately, I think entrepreneurs, there's only 7% of the population in the world are entrepreneurs and business owners. You know, if entrepreneurs can be fiscally healthy and care for themselves, they also have a system to now care for their colleagues, their employees. And this will start empowering employees to implement systems like Profit First or their own version of it in their own personal lives. And they can take this out on a higher level. So I, I think it can, it can really shift the world. And I know that's a huge, massive ask, but I think we've scratched the surface enough now to say there's, there's a real opportunity here. And it just excites me that so many people are embracing it and, and owning it and living it. So, I, I mean, I think the core, I mean, obviously the, the mindset shift, profit first, the, the status quo is profit last, that the uh, entrepreneur, yeah. that the business gets what's left over and right. your model says, no, 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 that's not how this works. We, we, take, we take the profit first and then we, we spend what's left over, which is essentially flipping uh, the model on its head. Another thing that you had brought up uh, when I saw you speak, and I think this is a really powerful point because I hear it so often. There's not a coaching call uh, that I feel like goes by where somebody doesn't say when we're doing like our quarterly check-ins, you know, where they make money or they didn't make money. And they say that the reason they didn't make money or what they're going to do with their money is quote unquote, reinvesting their profits back in the business. And you basically say that's kind of BS that when you reinvest profits, it's no longer profit. Now it's an expense where, I mean, you know, first I want you to comment on that, but then I also want to understand like, where do all, where does all this like mindset kind of the status quo come from? Because obviously, you know, most entrepreneurs aren't going to like entrepreneurial school to all learn the same thing, right? It's like coming from, you know, like almost like entrepreneurial lore or something that you should yeah, be yeah, you yeah. Know, reinvesting yeah. your profits to grow faster, right? Or whatever, right? So, I mean, like first talk about the idea of, of reinvesting profits and then maybe like yeah. help us understand where all these, you know, bad habits come from. Yeah. So I call total BS on reinvesting. Like it, it's not kind of a problem. It is a, a problem and we're, we're lying to ourselves. I clarity around this a, a while back. I was teaching profit first from a, the stage. And after the event, you know, some people want to talk to you and share their stories. And this one entrepreneur came up to me and she said, I really enjoyed your presentation profit first, but honestly, I don't need it. And I said, well, that's awesome. That means you're <laughs> profitable, right? And she said, yeah, because we, we did 22% profit last year. And I was like, wow, that, that's among the fiscally elite in any industry. So congratulations. I said, so tell me, wh- how'd you use that money? And she goes, well, we actually reinvested in the company. And the second she said reinvest, you know, for me, red flags, sirens going off, you know, there's a 21 gun salute. Like this is like, oh, <laughs> this is pay attention. I said, hold on, you reinvested. What what do you mean by that? And she says, we took all the profit, put it back in the business. And I said, okay, so the business accounts have it, but what did you do with this? She goes, well, then we spent it on new technology and new stuff. So I said, oh, so you spent your profit, right? She goes, yes. I said, so that money you spent was an expense, right? She goes, exactly. I said, well, an expense cannot be a profit. It's either one or the other. It's black or white. When, when we call something a profit and we spend the money, it's never was a profit. That's an accounting term. It makes us feel good. But if you spend money, it's an expense. Profits only defined in one simple patent method. It's money retained for the benefit of the shareholder. And you can distribute to the shareholder or maybe the company holds it on a cash account and then sends it to the shareholder later on. But the second that money is diverted to spend, it ain't a profit. It's an expense. So we have, and this kind of starts addressing your second 
topic is, is you know, the, the, the lore of entrepreneurship. The vernacular we use, there's some very soft terms. It makes us feel good to say, I reinvested a profit. It feels good to say, I plowed back a profit. Even though we never had a profit, the shareholder did not take that cash out to themselves. It feels good to say it was a profit or could have been a profit. But we just got to call bull on it. It's black or white. It was an expense and you didn't earn that money or retain that money. It's gone. The problem is our vernacular. And so reinvest, plow back, push back, all those terms are, are really soft terms for expenses and uh, it makes us feel good, but it's really, it's still an expense. When it comes to the profit formula itself, you know, it's sales minus expenses equals profit is the established formula. We're told profit comes last, but our vernacular is it's the bottom line or it's the year end. We literally use terms that have embedded in it insignificant. We're saying it's insignificant. I mean, think about when do you use the term bottom? Oh, that's on the bottom of my list. Oh, those people, they're bottom feeders. Like those are not complimentary terms. Those are not priorities, right? Or when something comes last, like I don't say like, I love my family so much. That's why I put them last. <laughs> you know, I love my family so much. I put them first or my health comes first. So it's human nature. When something comes first, it gets prioritized and addressed. When something comes last, it's the manana syndrome. And what we do with profit in the traditional formula, sales minus profit equals, I'm oh, sorry, sales minus expenses equals profit. We are saying that profit is not relevant and that we'll wait until the year end. And if it's not there, we'll say, well, maybe next year. And it's this constant delay. What we do with profit first is I want to challenge that vernacular. It's not the bottom line. It's the first priority. Sustainability comes out of profitability. So it's sales minus profit equals expenses. And what I'm saying in practice is every time you have a sale starting today, anytime there's a deposit, immediately take a predetermined percentage of that money, remove it from your business, allocate it toward a profit account. A profit account is only ever to reward the shareholder. The remainder now is what you have available to run your business. And now you know what is truly available to run your business. When you have a $1,000 deposit, you don't have a 1000 bucks to run a business. You have $1,000 deposit, you allocate some of that toward profit. You allocate toward other purposes first, like paying yourself a salary, reserving for taxes. You may realize when $1,000 comes in, you don't have $1,000 to operate your business. You have $400 to operate your business. And this will bring you this immediate clarity. By taking our profit first, we are forcing our business to reverse engineer a healthy business to support that profitability. So, so is it is it possible to, I guess, what under standard practices would somebody reinvest profits? I mean, is there a, I mean, I guess if you took money out of your business, is there ever an occasion in which you put that money back in your business for operating capital or to get started? Um, or does it all have to kind of come out of, out of future sales? Yeah, that, yeah. So there's a technique to address future decisions. Pulling from the profit account for any other purpose besides a reward to the shareholder is generally a no-no. There is an exception to eradicate past debt. Debt gets prioritized over future gains, but we still need to give ourselves some reward. Profit first is all rooted in behavioral psychology. And if you just try to crush debt without rewarding yourself to some degree, we actually still have a negative connotation associated with it. So we can, we can use the profit account only with past debts, but if we continue to accumulate debt, there's a fundamental flaw in the business. Profit is not used to resolve ongoing problems. And when it comes to reinvestment, we want to proactively address it. Here's a classic reinvestment example. I have a small business. I think I need to hire a new employee. I don't think I can afford them though, but I can't afford not to have them. So I'm, I'm in this kind of between a rock and a hard place. So can I afford them? And if I don't have them, I have to work harder until I can afford them. But when's the right time? Well, the, the old mindset was, hey, if there's any cash list over, let's, let's just roll it toward this employee. But that's not proactive thinking. That's very reactionary. Like, do we have money? Let's just try this. A better method that we use with Profit First is for any circumstance that's significant, you can set up an account. 
So in the traditional teaching of Prop First, there's what we call the five foundational accounts at your bank. There's a couple holding accounts. But out of these five foundational accounts, you may add a sixth account. And one account may be, and we have it actually at our company, is future employee. We're considering hiring an employee for uh, intensive social media and just traditional media management. And this employee may cost us $75,000 a year is our estimate. But we don't know if the business is cash flowing healthily enough to support that plus all the other ongoing costs we have. So we set up an account, we call it future employee, and uh, we're paying a salary to this account of 75000 So every time money comes in, every time we do payroll, the equivalent for this person's salary is being allocated specifically to this one account. Well, we've now sustained, we're, we're past the six month point, and we said, okay, we're cash flowing strong enough that we can pay this. We've accumulated over $40,000 in this account. Now we're starting the interview process. In fact, someone just before we did this came into my office. He met with another person here and I just interviewed him. And uh, we're considering multiple people. The beautiful thing is when this person comes on board, whoever it may be in the next two or three months, we're still paying this account. When they come on board, I've first proven I can pay this person because I've cash flowed it. Secondly, when they come on board, I have the cash reserve now to pay them. So we have a runway to get them up to speed. It's not a panic that they got to drive revenue tomorrow. We can actually educate them and train them. And that's how we need to look at any of our investments is don't take from a profit account, seven accounts specifically to address that need. Therefore, we have a controlled environment where we know what we're walking toward. If we say, you know what, whenever I need to reinvest my business, I can just pull from the profit account. It becomes arbitrary. It's like, well, I, you know, I saw a lot of people doing Facebook ads and I think I can drive a lot of money there. I'll call this a reinvestment. We pull from the profit account. There's no planning going into it. So avoid using the profit account for reinvestments. Instead, set up a new account, allocate money toward it, see how the business is cash flowing. If you can't afford it, then you have to make some considerations. Do we need to cut expenses elsewhere? Do we need to increase margins? Why can't we afford it? Until you can healthily afford that cash flow into that dedicated account, and now you're positioned to make a logical, healthy, prudent investment. Hey, what's up, agency owners? As someone that's built hundreds of websites for clients over the last 20 years, I know how important it is to have a content management system that helps me launch sites fast so I can focus on getting my clients' results and building a successful and profitable agency. If you're looking for a new CMS, I'd like to introduce you to a new platform called Zephyr, a content management system built for power users and agencies. Build websites faster, make clients happier. Find out more info at ZephyrCMS.com and get one free site for life and a free theme setup valued at $500. That's ZephyrCMS.com. Now let's get back to our interview. I think that's extraordinarily insightful just around, I mean, just the planning, the controlling, not pilfering your your business's profit every time you have an interesting idea or you have a problem that needs to be solved. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, to to your point, right? The the best way to, not the best way to study for an exam, but likely that people are studying more efficiently or better when they have a a smaller amount of time, at least earlier in this show. I think you described my entire college experience. Uh, (laughs) Mine too, right? (laughs) But having that fixed because I think that's that that's powerful, right? I mean, if you end up, you know, sending that money aside or budgeting for it, and it doesn't work out, that it, you know, if it cuts into profit too much, or you know, if it cuts into profit more than you know what you were allocating for, or like you just your your general targets can't afford it, then you probably need to problem solve. I mean, I know in the past I've hired full time positions when I probably could have made do with a contractor, right? I mean, totally. I've hired, you know, maybe somebody in the U.S. versus somebody outside the U.S. Or you know, I've made. Comprom- I've made compromises on profit versus you know versus compromise in in the solution to to maintain profit. I think that's that can be that's extraordinarily powerful. Parkinson's law 
it's interesting on the flip side. So Parkinson stated as a resource expands its availability, we, we consume more. So more money will consume more. On the flip side, as we reduce the amount of money available, there's forced frugality. That's obvious. Like, so I have less, if I have $100 to spend, Parkinson states, you'll find a way to spend $100. If you have $10, you can't spend $100 because you only have $10. So that's forced frugality. I think the more fascinating com- component, though, is the second part where he argued that innovative thinking comes in and that we leverage the the reduced resource even more. We find ways to extract value out of it. If you think food, if I put a big plate of food, generally the larger the plate, people will eat it faster. A smaller plate, if you ever go to like a, a fine restaurant where they serve something, it's like it looks like a little scoop of ice cream and that's like your entree. <laughs> like, you know, people will actually save, will consume it slower and savor it more. They will actually taste more because they're valuing the reduced supply. With money, when we reduce the amount of money available, we start thinking innovatively. We savor actually that cash and say, okay, I only have $10 to spend. How do I get the same value out of $10? And we become much more prudent in spending. So when we had this profit account piling up, and when I started the Profit First system, I did this exact same thing. I saw money piling up my profit account. One day bills came in I couldn't afford. And instead of saying, well, why can't I afford these? I got to improve the structure of my business. I said, well, I got some money in my profit account. Let me just borrow from my profit account. And to your point, I was just pilfering. It just it destroyed the profit account. I never paid it back and I never will. So what I did when I had that realization was I actually hide the money for myself. So my profit account, um, and there's other accounts I do this with, I set up a hidden holding account, not with my main bank, but it's a secondary bank and transfer the money there. So when money flows into my business and I allocate money toward profit, it's hidden away. I cannot touch it. And with it hidden away and, and inconvenient to access, I am forced to work within the confines of what's truly available for my business. I'm forced to keep reverse engineering around that profit that's now hidden away. And um, when I can't pay my bills, that's my business telling me I can't afford my bills. There's something fundamentally flawed here. I got to get back to the structure of the business and run more efficiently, uh, reduce unnecessary costs. And usually the greatest opportunity is increased margin to dictate more. So profit, not only do we need to allocate first, we actually need to hide it away from ourselves. And uh, I think every entrepreneur that I've met surprises how much innovative thinking comes to mind when you can't rely on the easy outlet of just you know borrowing from your profit account. I think you mentioned uh, in 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 your talk that uh, you, that account was accessible with a two hour drive and a right. you know a cashier's check or something like the drive of shame or something. Yeah, yeah, I call it the drive of shame because <laughs> because what I did when I uh, first set this up. And, and I realized I got to remove this money's access. I put it at a bank that was actually three hours away from me. And uh, when I went to that bank, I gave them the instructions. I'm only going to withdraw money through a banker's check. So I actually physically have to be here. I'm the only, I actually had dual signatures. It was me and another person, again, to further remove the easy access to it. And I call it the drive of shame because the first time I did it, it was so, I was so routinized in my own thinking. I, bills came in, couldn't pay the bills. I wanted to get this new technology. So I'm like, oh, I don't have any money. I said, oh yeah, the profit account. And, like, oh, and I just automatically went to the car and started driving. And about 10 minutes into it, I'm like, I have a three hour drive in front of me. What am I doing? The whole reason this is so far away is so I don't steal for myself. And I turned the car around and I got to thinking and found a solution, which I don't recall even what it was now, that didn't require that money. So distancing yourself from that money, making it inconvenient forces you to, to bring thought to a conscious level. There's, there's an old trick with credit cards and personal spending. 
take your credit cards, put it in a Ziploc bag, suck the air out, put it in a Ziploc bag, and then put a frozen block around it. This way, uh, if you need your credit card, the only way to do it is take it out of your freezer in this big frozen block and sit and wait for four hours. It unfreezes. Or if you really want to speed things up, throw it in the microwave to microwave and melt it away. But guess what? You're going to cook your card and can't use it. So it forces this pause to think. When money's easily accessible, it dumbs us down. We don't give ourselves pause. We think at a subconscious level and we're very reactionary. When something isn't accessible, like our profit, we have to work within the confines of what we have and it forces a much higher level conscious intellectual consideration. Well, Mike, I think you've got an extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful message for our listeners. Uh, I hope our listeners have taken lots of notes or, or, or are going to, better yet, take some action from today's episode and start thinking, flipping that model for themselves, move more to a profit first versus profit last, help, help Mike eradicate entrepreneurial poverty by taking action on his... Uh, on his methodologies. Yeah, his start movement. with yourself, right? Yeah, start with yourself. So, uh, Mike, this has been extraordinarily uh, educational and insightful. Are you ready for our lightning round? Well, yeah, I am. I think I am. I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> Lay it on me. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what is the best advice you've ever received? Oh, you know, this one always comes to mind immediately is don't listen to my advice. It was interesting because it was an expert and I asked him for advice and selling to a customer and he said, I'll tell you, but don't listen to me. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, the customer always speaks their truth through their wallets, trust their action. Because if you seek the input of an expert, they'll give you their opinion, but they're not the customer. Customers trump experts. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? Uh, exercise. I mean, it really isn't a new habit. Um, but I, in the last five years, I, I do not miss it. I exercise five days a week, pretty much religiously. And, uh, it just brings an, an endless resource of energy that I need for my business and for my life. Can you share an internet resource, a tool, or an app that you use on a regular basis that you think our listeners would find valuable? Yeah, I think the the newest app that I'm in love with now is Bomb Bomb. It used to be a competitor called Bonjuro, but I think Bomb Bomb for my needs is even better. I can do video uh, responses, send videos to any of my readers or, or fans or or anyone I'm communicating with via email, but I can embed a personalized video with a single click. And it's so convenient and it's so impactful because most people don't send videos to other people. And what book customized you, videos. And, uh, and we'll definitely link out to that. Um, and what book would you recommend and why? And then uh, besides your own, right? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. Read all my books. Uh, no, um, Friction. Holy crap, Ola. This is the book it's a shame this book is not more popular. It's written by an author named Roger Dooley. He is a neuroscientist studying what makes uh, buying decisions, what influences buying decisions. And he says the number one factor is this concept called friction. The more friction there is in it between a transaction, it's less likely to happen. And he outlines a very simple strategy that we can diagnose friction in any part of our business and therefore improve our business extraordinarily well. Awesome. Great recommendation. Haven't heard that yet on the show. So uh, we will link out to that book, uh, Friction, along with all the other resources, takeaways, tips, uh, and more good stuff at yougurus.com forward slash podcast. Click on Mike's episode and you'll see comprehensive show notes for today's episode. Again, that is at yougurus.com forward slash podcast. Uh, Mike, how can our audience find out more about you? And is there anything that you have that they can check out? 
Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for allowing me to share this. I think the best place to start, and there's great resources here that I'll share, is at MikeMikalowitz.com. Here's the deal. Uh, Mikalowitz is impossible to spell. Uh, so here's a shortcut. Go to MikeMotorbike.com, high school nickname. And I, the irony is I've never driven a motorcycle. I don't plan to, but uh, that was my name. So MikeMotorbike.com. Click on, when you get there, click on get the tools. Every one of my books, you'll get the free chapters in the books, two to three chapters for every book. So you can explore it. And how I write my books is you can experience significant impact within two or three chapters. So you can get started within seconds. I'm also a blogger, a podcaster. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. All of those resources, the articles I've written and so forth, they're all available for free. If you go to mikemotorbike.com, click on get the tools, you'll get all that stuff immediately. Awesome. Well, we will also include uh, a link to MikeMotorbike.com <laughs> and also MikeMikalowitz.com. Uh, if you just check out our show notes, YouGurus.com forward slash podcast. If you're on a run or on the road, you can find all that info uh, in that usual place on our website. And uh, we'll include all those links to uh, Mike and all the great work that he's doing for entrepreneurs worldwide. So Mike, thank you very much for being on our program today. Brent, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. And that's it for this week's episode of the Digital Agency Show. Stay tuned each and every week for more great content coming to you to help you grow your digital agency so you can achieve freedom in your business and life. Until next time, I'm Brent Weaver. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, if you want that free ebook on how to scale to multiple six and seven figures, all you got to do is DM me on Facebook the word gift at Brent Weaver and I'll send you your guide on how to achieve freedom in your business and life. Until next time, I'm Brent Weaver.